Everybody, good evening. I'd like to invite you back to your seats. While Pastor Ross is gone, we try to get as many people up on the stage as we can, so that's why I'm up here. For those of you who don't know, I'm Adam. I oversee the student ministries here, and uh, the junior high group has joined tonight because of our special speaker, which I'll in- introduce in just a moment. Um, as um, Pastor Carlin mentioned, Ross is ill, so he's out tonight, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, but it worked out because we actually had somebody planned to share tonight anyway, so it, it worked out in God's uh, providence and uh, wisdom and sovereignty that, uh, this would, that this would happen. So it was a good time for him to get sick, if he was going to get sick. <laughs> so we've been going through the Psalms on Wednesday nights, and we're just going to put a chart up just as a little bit of a review, what we've touched base on. So we have kind of uh, a few themes, um, subjects that we've highlighted in the Psalms here, seven of them to be specific. And last week we were in the Psalms of Praise, looking at Psalm 8. And so you can see the check marks there. We did uh, the hymns of lament and hymns of provocation, hymns for special occasions. So we've got a few topics left, and tonight is hymns of wisdom. And so a little story before I introduce uh, our speaker. We had um, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, we had a time where we just had some of the guys on staff prepare a Bible study message, and it happened to be Psalm 1. And so at the time uh, that the guys gave it, they were told, hey, keep, keep your uh, messages because you might be able to use them sometime in the future. And that was before we even knew that we were going to be in the book of Psalms on Wednesday night. And so when we got to the wisdom Psalms, uh, Pastor Ross asked Dylan if he would uh, come and share his message on Psalm 1 here before us. So Dylan helps out with student ministries. He's been uh, helping me with high school and junior high. He teaches a lot in both groups. Um, He's been teaching a lot in the junior high group, so we're in here to hang out with him. And so by God's wisdom, he set up the wisdom Psalms under Dylan to share with us in Pastor Ross's absence. Of course, he wished he could be here so he could listen in and share in fellowship with us as well. Uh, just, a, just a little bit about Dylan. Uh, he was in our high school group here. His family was coming to our church, and he came uh, into our high school group. So he went from high school student to uh, Bible college student to now pastoral intern on staff here at The Rock. And, and I'm just so proud of him, and uh, it's my pleasure to, and if you would, welcome with me as I introduce Dylan to come up here and share with us. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. And thank you to Pastor Adam and Pastor Jonathan um, and Pastor Carlin and especially Pastor Ross. I wish he could be here. Um, those guys have had just such a huge impact in my life. And even looking around here, just at all, all my friends and basically family who have impacted my life. And you're going to hear a little bit more about how this church has um, really been used by God to change me, but more on that later. So if you would turn with me to Psalm 1, as Pastor Adam mentioned. And as I'm turning there, I just wanted to share uh, a quick poem with you to kind of set the stage for what the psalm is going to be talking about. And even if you hate poetry, I'm sure that you've probably heard at least one line of this poem. And it goes like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, 
and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Amen. And so that really iconic poem by Robert Frost um, is about this character who comes in the woods and finds a fork in the road in these two paths, and he's trying to figure out which path to go down. But there's no signs, and he's looking as far as he can see, but he can't see where they lead to. And just like that character, we're really in the same position, a fork in the road presented with two paths, except here's where it's different. We can actually see which road is which and where they lead to by the light of God's word, and especially Psalm 1, which is going to show us the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And most importantly, where they lead to, so that hopefully by the end of this, we aren't like the guy in this poem who's sitting there looking and just wondering which way to go, but he can see clearly which path to take, and that we would take the path of the righteous man. And so before we read the passage, I just want to pray for us real quick. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we're just so in awe of you, and we're so thankful that we can, we can come before you, and we can talk with you, and we even have your word, Lord, that um, you would even give us the time of day in the first place, not even that, but you would give up your own son for us, God. So we just want to pay attention to your words, Lord. We want to hear what you say. We want to delight in your law, Lord. And most of all, we want to delight in you. And um, just like the psalmist says in Psalm 27, Lord, that's the one thing we ask is we just want you, Lord, and we want to grow closer to you, um, casting aside whatever is going to stop us, Lord. And so give us hearts ready to understand your word, Lord. You give us life and you give us breath and um, you also made our brains, Lord, so help us to understand and help us to focus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so as we're going to go through the psalm, we're going to see three big points, three big ideas. And the first is going to be our description of the righteous man. Really, what is he like? What does he do? What does he not do? We're also going to see the blessing of the righteous man. So what does his life eventually result in? And then finally, we're going to find our warning to the wicked. So alternatively, after having seen the righteous man and the blessing that follows, what is the warning sign that we have for the wicked? So our first First point is going to be the description of the righteous man, verses 1 through 2. And so as he's describing the righteous man to us, he's going to mention really a negative aspect to him and a positive aspect to him. So something that the man rejects and something that he accepts, something that he hates and something that he loves. 
And so first, we're going to see the negative aspect. As you see in verse 1, there's really three things that he's going to turn away from. And that's going to be walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, finally sitting in the seat of scoffers. And one commentator, Derek Kidner, he says, counsel, way, and seat, those three things that he avoids. Counsel, way, and seat draw attention to the realms of thinking and behaving and belonging. And so really this righteous man um, is not somebody just toying around with sin. He sees really all areas of it, thinking about it, um, committing it, and even involving himself in actions of sin with other people. He's not playing around and he's not negotiating with sin. And like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he does believe that bad company does corrupt good character. And we even see that this righteous man in his rejection of sin would actually disagree with the famous theologian, Dolly Parton, who said, I feel that sin and evil are the negative part of you. I agree with that so far. Then she says, I think it's like a battery. You've got to have the negative and the positive in order to be a complete person. That is worldly wisdom. The righteous man would say, that's not the case. Sin is not what completes you. It's the battery corrosion that eats and destroys the battery. It's not something to be messed around with. And there's a a quote that one of my teachers from Bible college would always say about sin, and I still remember it you know, after one or two years, and he said this. He said, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And that is so true. And so this righteous man is not a man who negotiates with sin. He doesn't say a little bit's going to be okay, but we see that it really multiplies and consumes his life, and he realizes that. And so in the midst of a sinful and God-hating world, he's pursuing after God. And we actually find a pretty interesting correlation in John 17 as we find Jesus praying for his disciples who are in the same situation as the righteous man. Where the righteous man, he's in a sinful world that's full of these influences that want to change his life. And so are the disciples. He says in the prayer that he's sending them into the world, um, not to be a part of the world, but to go and minister. But he prays two things to the Father. He says to protect them from the evil one, that's Satan, but then also to sanctify them by his word. So it means to set them apart and make them holy. And so just as Jesus is praying for his disciples who are going to be in the world, but he doesn't want them to get caught up in sin, and he's praying they'd be set apart and made holy by God's word, that's the exact thing that we find the righteous man doing, is that he is instead of turning to sin, turning to God's word, which we're going to see is going to set him apart and make him holy. And so as he turns away from sin and the world, he's instead turning to God and his word. And a theologian from a couple hundred years ago, Jonathan Edwards, he said that our turning from the world doesn't, quote, consist in being beat from the world by the affliction of it, but by being drawn off by the sight of something better. Or to say it another way, we aren't drawn away from the world by merely growing sick of sin, but by also gaining a taste for God and his law. And so that's exactly what we find the righteous man doing is he is delighting in God's law there in verse, uh, verse two. And so the question that came to my mind is why would he delight in God's law? Commonly when we think of laws, we think of those things as restrictions, those things that wanna hold us back. And very rarely when I'm out sharing the gospel will anybody ever tell me, 
Um, I delight in God's law. Even amongst Christians, it can be kind of a rare thing for people to love his word or to express that. And so I began to think about this attitude towards God's word. And it's really a, a deception from Satan that's saying that God is trying to keep us from something good, that he's trying to you know, be that wet blanket or you know, stop our party or whatever. In reality, it's quite the opposite, that he's trying to keep us close to him. And, and I came face to face with this attitude um, when I was down at Bible college and we, get, we got to go on an outreach to a NASCAR race where there was a ministry there that had a tent that they'd set up with crafts and games and even a Grand Prix for the kids like Awana's about to do. And they would tell Bible stories um, and it's out in the middle of this racetrack. And so we brought enough students to fill up all the positions that needed help in the tent. So some of us were just left standing around and like, well, I guess we'll just walk around and share the gospel with people. Um, most terrifying thing I've ever done. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> But I'll never forget one encounter I had with somebody. So as we're out sharing the gospel, I begin giving him the message. Then he stops me. He says, how old are you? I said, well, I'm 19. That was how old I was then. And then this is the part I'll never forget. He says, so you're telling me that you're wasting your party years on this Christianity and God thing. And I just, I just had to stop for a second. I, I didn't hate him. I didn't dislike him for what he said, but it was just that deception that Satan had placed on his mind. And it was just crazy to see that paradox of the world, how this man was urging me to spend my life on what would ultimately be eternal waste. And he was looking at my life and seeing the things I was investing in. And he was saying, that's going to be a waste, what would end up being eternal gain. And so this lie that God and his word are just going to waste our lives and keep us from something good is totally contrary to what we find the righteous man doing of delighting in God's law. And it's really a lie that we've seen Satan perpetrating year after year after year since the very beginning of, of creation. In Genesis 3, when Eve comes to the tree and he's trying to deceive her into eating the fruit, and he tells her, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he comes to her and says, first of all, that God is a liar, that surely you aren't going to die. And then he tells her, look, take and eat of it, because God's trying to keep you from becoming like him. He's trying to keep you from something good. When in reality, as soon as she ate of it, she experienced that penalty that God spoke of and fell even further and further from the holiness of being like God. And so the lie from the very beginning was that God was withholding something good from us. And really in opposition to that lie, I want to show you why we can delight in God's law and what he has to say about it. So Psalm 119 is a really perfect psalm that almost the entire thing is describing to us God's law and the amazing benefits of it. So Psalm 119 verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. To be honest, when I wake up in the morning trying to read my Bible, that's often not what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking, oh, got to do this, but there's wonderful things in his law, in his word. We also see Psalm 119, verse 72, which says, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. That is a pretty incredible statement. And I was thinking, there's a lot of get-rich-quick schemes, but here's the quickest and truest one. 
Just pick up the word. It's worth more than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Would that be the one possession I would choose if I could choose anything? And then Psalm 119, verse 96 says, To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Again, in verse 160, he says, All your words are true. So we can come to God's word, and unlike the world and unlike Satan, we can say, I have complete confidence that whatever this says is going to be true. It's what God says. I don't have to, you know, make something up. I don't have to have all these other little standards that I've got to consult with, but I can just come to God's word and say, this is the way it is. You know, gives us, gives us so much confidence in living life. And frankly, I would be terrified if I was just up here sharing my opinions because those aren't really worth anything. But I'm sharing from God's word and I can say that's what it says. That's his timeless truth that is so much power. And so really the last thing I want to say about God's word is that it is supremely delightful, not because it's trying to keep us from something good, but it's trying to keep us close with someone good. And so having now seen his affection for and delight in God's law, the psalmist is going to tell us the next thing that the righteous man does. It tells us that he meditates upon God's law. And we want to stop really quick and make sure that we've got the right definition of meditate because it's had different definitions of what it really means. And um, you know, more recently, we think of it in terms of kind of the mystical idea of just opening and clearing out your mind. But the Bible has really the exact opposite definition. It's telling us to meditate on God's word, to fill our mind with something instead and to constantly think about that thing. And I want us to notice something very interesting about how he describes the righteous man. First, he points out that he rejoices, or that he delights in God's law, and that that results in him meditating upon it. And it's really an unbreakable rule that we see that what we love most, what we cherish the most, is gonna be what we think about the most. And so because he loves his law so much, and he cherishes his law so much, that results in him constantly thinking about it. I remember um, when I was younger, I used to do um, competitive weightlifting, believe it or not. <laughs> I promise I did when I was younger. Um, and I just loved it. It was my favorite sport. And I remember looking back, I was constantly watching videos about the professionals and the Olympians trying to analyze their technique and reading books on how to fix my technique and um, visualizing it in my mind of how to do it right. And I remember I was standing out in the garage with just a wooden dowel, just practicing over and over the technique for it. But looking back, I can tell because that's what I thought about the most. That's what I love the most. And my meditation was really on the wrong thing. So alternatively, it should be on God's word. It's really that thing just kind of simmering or mulling over in the back of our mind. And so now, a really good example of this, of meditating and cherishing God's word, is John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And you know, somebody said about him that if you cut him, John Bunyan, he'd bleed scripture. <laughs> and you know, you know, we have some sports fans who say, you know, I love the Giants. If you cut me, I'd bleed black and orange. Sorry, I'm not a Giants fan. <laughs> and um, you know, people might say that their line of work runs in their family's blood. You know, they're um, carpenters or whatever it may be. So what they're saying is, this is what defines me, this is part of who I am. But he said about John Bunyan, if you cut him, he'd bleed scripture. 
which causes me to wonder, you know, if I got cut, figuratively, what would I bleed? And I'm sure it has you wondering, what would you bleed if you got cut? And so we find that this righteous man is not merely a man of avoidance of sin, but also a devotion to God's word. And that's going to lead us to our second point, as now we've seen really the path that he's walking on. Now we're going to see the blessing or the result of what he's walking into. And that's in verse 3, which tells us that he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. And so in order to describe um, how this man is prospering, he paints this really vivid picture for us of this tree that is watered and that's fruitful and then it's during and that it has its roots down deep. And that's all to describe to us that he is prospering in all that he does. And so as I read that, the question that kind of comes to the surface is what kind of prospering is he talking about? Because we want to know that. Prospering is kind of an exciting word. You know, it doesn't mean that he's never going to be sick or that he's always going to succeed in his investments, you know, like the TV preachers will sometimes say. No, we've read the rest of the Bible and seen all the Bible heroes, seen all the characters in the Bible who are following after the Lord. And we've seen that their lives aren't always, actually most of the time aren't characterized by health or by success. You know, some of the prophets, um, we even see the Apostle Paul that after he got saved, his life became so much harder than it was before. But in reality, what we see is that they were men who were exceedingly rich, but that was by God's standard. That the righteous man, even when he's wrapped in worldly poverty, is in fact engulfed in heavenly prosperity. And I'm not talking again about physical things. That's not the great blessing. It's if you believed in Jesus as your savior, you have more riches than the richest man on the planet. You've received forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience, a heart satisfied by God, and a life that's being lived and impactful for others. And it's because of the truth that there's actually something greater than this world, that there's this contentment in God and succeeding according to his plans, which is for his glory and far greater than ours, that the writer to the Hebrews um, can just make this crazy statement, at least crazy from our perspective. And he says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, not because they were wimps, but because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So they realized that there was something better in this world than just material riches, and what they valued more was the glory of God and them growing closer to him in each and every circumstance. And, you know, a great example of this is the life of Joseph, where, I mean, it just seems like one thing after another is brothers throw him into a pit, then they decide to sell him in slavery, and then he's trying to be faithful as he's working, and then he's falsely accused, and then he's thrown into prison, and then he's forgotten about. But we just have a few scriptures where the Lord talks about Joseph prospering. Genesis 39 verse two says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And then just one, uh, one verse later says, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And finally, verse 23, this was when Joseph was in prison after having been falsely accused. It says, the warden paid no attention 
to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. And so we see this picture of Joseph's life, you know, certainly not prospering according to the world's standard as we see him in prison, but it's absolutely according to God's plan. I tell you what, it was far better for him to be walking in the Lord's will than to be off pursuing something else. Um, and I tell you what, it's just so much better just having God. Like honestly, that was, that was the thought that ran through my mind when I was at that NASCAR race with the guy um, of even just kind of a, a thought of pity and just wanting him to get the gospel. Because I'm like, this life is so much better because I have God. And the fulfilled life isn't, it isn't a life full of things. Fulfilled life is a life that's full of God. I remember, um, I'm not sure how many of you remember when I started coming here about, I think five or six years ago um, for the first time. And I remember after a few weeks going to youth group, I was just sitting over in Adam's office, like two, 300 feet away on his couch. And I remember telling him, I feel like I don't need God. And after that, God took me on a crazy journey, finishing out high school, going to Bible college. And now five or six years later, here I am at the pulpit getting to stand in the same building where I said, I feel like I don't need God and getting to now say, we need God. <laughs> I mean, that is so ironic, but it's, and I'm so much, like that's, that's a fulfilled life is being satisfied by God and in every moment yielding to him and trusting in his plan. It's ultimately working for his glory. So the righteous person can walk with the confidence that their every step and their every move carries eternal significance for their good and for God's glory. And so I really, I want to be like this tree we see in verse three, where it's firmly planted, where it's really spiritually um, stable and it's impacting the lives of others and bearing fruit. And I don't, I don't want to waste my life. And so speaking of the wasted life, we come to our point number three, which is a warning for the wicked, verses four through six. And so we find that the psalmist is going to continue kind of with his agricultural terms as he, as he started describing the righteous man as this flourishing tree that's planted by the streams of water and he's bearing fruit and he's enduring. And now he describes the wicked man as chaff. And so chaff was kind of the outer husk around the wheat, the outer husk around the grain. And when the farmers would come and harvest, they, they would have both of those there. But what they valued was the grain. That's what they wanted to sell. That's what they could use. And so the process was them tossing this up to the wind, and the wind would blow the chaff away because it was light, it wasn't substantial, and they were left with the grain. And what they would do is they would just throw the chaff away or they would throw it into the fire. But it was something that was tossed away as something worthless. And that is what the wicked are described as, chaff that's blown away by the wind. And Again, I think back to, to the guy at NASCAR who you know, told me that I was wasting my life and seeing that as he is rejecting God, that he's described as chaff that's thrown away and in reality he was throwing his life away um, as waste. And so really we come to God and we want to have his viewpoint of who we are and really apart from him we are like this chaff 
And Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching an entire sermon just on verse four, he said this, that the man who is ungodly, however much he may value himself, is as nothing in the estimation of God. Put a gold chain round his neck, put a star upon his chest, or put a crown upon his head. And what is he but a crowned heap of dirt? They're honest words, but kind of rings, rings true with what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter eight. And he says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying, your soul is absolutely precious. That if I were to spend the rest of my life seeing how much money I could make, seeing how many of those dream jobs I could land, seeing you know how many books I could write, how many degrees I could earn, if I'm gonna end up you know, with that girl, girl of my dreams as my wife, if all of it is an exchange for my soul, it's all loss, completely loss. And so, you know, Jesus, he also speaks about chaff in the New Testament, really in reference to judgment. Um, we see in Matthew 3, verse 12, that he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so there Jesus is kind of using this picture of the wheat and the chaff um, to symbolize the judgment of how they would separate the wheat from the chaff, preserve the wheat, and throw away the chaff. And that looks to the judgment where God is going to preserve the righteous, give them eternal life, and where he is going to cast aside the wicked to eternal punishment. And this really looks ahead to verse 5 where we see him talking about this, this judgment. And so kind of the question that we're faced with is, well, how do I be the righteous man so that I don't end up like the wicked man where he can't stand under the judgment? What is causing him to not be able to stand? Well, it's for this reason that he doesn't have God's righteousness to sustain him. He doesn't have God's righteousness to keep him standing up. And so righteousness is simply being made right with God. And so, you know, if we've all broken God's law, we've got this massive problem of wanting to become righteous somehow, wanting to become right with God. And the answer is in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the thing that makes a wicked man a wicked man is that he comes to God and says, here's all I've got, here's everything I've done. Now, judge me according to that. And, you know, even the most seemingly perfect person, no matter how many old ladies we've walked across the street, no matter how much money we've ever given, none of it is going to be enough to actually be anything substantial to offer to God and say, accept me on the basis of this. But instead, Jesus says, you're going to be accepted upon the basis of who I am and, who, and what I've done. And so, you know, I just thought when thinking about our efforts for salvation, um, Jonathan Edwards, the guy that I quoted earlier, he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And I tell you what, that's why the wicked man is not going to stand in the judgment because all he's standing under is his own righteousness. And so, you know, the only reason that we can stand in the judgment is because we have somebody standing for us. And if we reject him, what hope do we have? And when we reject the rescuer, we reject being rescued. And so, it's kind of the final story I'll share. 
it was, uh, I don't even know how many years ago, probably 10 years ago. Um, I was a little kid and went over to my grandparents' pool and to go swimming there. And so I was paddling around, had my little water wings on, make you look like you got huge biceps, but um, I was just paddling around and I wanted to take them off because you never see the Olympians wearing them. You never see the Navy SEALs wearing them. So, so, you know, I asked my mom if I could take them off and kind of hesitant knowing that I couldn't swim, but she said, sure, but if you stay on the top step, it's like, okay, I can do that. I can stand on the top step. So got over there, took them off, stood on the top step, and in my little kid brain, just marched straight down the stairs, and I began to drown. And don't worry, I survived. But, <laughs> but at that point, there was nothing I could do. I didn't know how to swim. I didn't have my water wings anymore um, until my mom jumped in and saved me and did what I could never do. And here's the reality is that whenever we move away from the things that keep us safe, you know, whether it's me stepping away from my mom, taking off the water wings that were going to keep me safe, or stepping off the top step, what inevitably happens? I begin to drown. And so it is with God. When we reject God, we're no longer able to stand. We can't swim on our own. And I'm so thankful that that's, that's not where it ends. He didn't just leave us drowning and floundering because that's where we were. But just like my mom jumped in to save me, God plunged into our world to save us. As he came fully God and fully man, lived a completely perfect life so that he could stand and say, I've done nothing wrong, so that he could take our sins for him, or he could take our sins for us. Um, He could take our sins for us upon the cross and completely pay for those, completely, so that there's nothing that we could do. We were floundering and drowning And just like verse six says, he's watching over the way of the righteous, like my mom was watching over me and saved me from my own inability to swim. And so, just kind of wrapping up, at the beginning I I mentioned how there's gonna be these two paths, these two ways that we can walk down, either of the righteous man or of the wicked man. And we saw that the wicked man, he's unstable and weak like the chaff, just blown away by the wind, and ultimately their life is a waste, um, just wasted for this life and also for eternity. And we also have the path of the righteous man who turns from sin and turns, turns towards delighting in God's word and meditating and thinking upon his word because that's what he loves. And the result is a life that's prospering, not by earthly treasures, but by being fulfilled by God himself. And so I just want to close by reading the very last verse of the poem that I read at the very beginning. It says, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, at the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and see the straight and narrow path I've walked of just trusting in Jesus and the delight that we find in him and in being able to stand in the judgment because of what he's done for us. And I want to be able to say that that was that which makes all the difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so, we're just so grateful for how you've saved us, Lord. 
how you've worked in our life, God, how you've seen all of our sins and all of our brokenness and time when I would have, I would have rejected myself for how I had broken your law, Lord. You came down and were rejected yourself on our behalf. So God, we thank you so much. We want to be the righteous man who walks in trust in you and delighting in you and turning away from the things that want to draw us away from you. So God, give us the desire to want more of you and less of this world, to want more of what you have to say, God. So we're so thankful. Um, Just leave us in awe of who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.